Some of the highest performing uh, CEOs and, and leaders are those who have structure and those who have routine. And that's not um, a bias, I don't think, that I'm bringing from a military, a military background. But um, I think in today's day and age, especially with you know, emails and iPhone apps and, and everything else, it's very easy to be distracted by pop-ups and have someone else dictating your daily agenda, your weekly agenda, your monthly, yearly agenda. I think those that are very, very successful have structure and routine around it. Some, some of them, even though they perhaps lack the self-discipline to, to enact that, have a really, really good EA that will then keep them on track. So whether that if they've got enough self-discipline, um, they can do it themselves, or if they don't, they've got a really effective EA that, that keeps them on that. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with a passionate leader, management consultant and trusted business advisor who has an affinity for the outdoors, has an eye for detail and thrives in leading strategy and teams and giving back to the business community. He has a graduate diploma in international relations from Deakin University, a Bachelor of Arts, Politics and Information Systems from the University of New South Wales, an advanced diploma in personal operations management, government and administration from the Royal Australian Air Force College. His career included nine years as an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, Executive Officer of the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Senior Manager at Strategy and, which was formerly Booz and Company and, and then bought by PwC, and Principal Head of Strategy of Helmsman International Group. Currently has turned his focus to his multi-award winning Australian landscape photography business as Managing Director of Scott Leo Gallery and has recently become a director of Canberra Business Chamber. I'm honoured and privileged to introduce to you a former Australian diplomat who is a meticulous planner, travel extraordinaire and loves optimising performance. Scott Lego. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Craig. Great to be here. Wow, what an incredibly uh, diverse background. You know, where did life start out for you and what fueled your passions during your formative years? Yeah, so look, I, I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, I had a father who was an air traffic controller. I had an auntie who was uh, an ANSET air hostess. I had an uncle who was an ANSET pilot. Uh, I lived not very far from Essendon Airport in Melbourne. So from a you know, very young age, I think I was surrounded by aviation. And that has been a, a constant theme, you know, there on for me uh, in my life. So, you know, right from the get-go, uh, you know, aviation has been a, a strong theme in my upbringing. The school that I then uh, went to uh, wasn't far from Tullamarine Airport, so I was surrounded by seeing aircraft taking off and landing, you know, every day. Uh, I, I knew from a pretty young age that I wanted to fly aircraft. I think from you know year seven, I was saying I'm going to be a pilot, and then I think Dad was horrified at you know thinking about how much he was going to have to uh, you know pay for me for pilots training lessons. So I think he quickly steered me towards the hey, have you thought about the Air Force? I think they give you a whole <laughs> lot of pilot training and things like that. So you know pretty much from you know about year seven, I was saying I'm going to be a, an Air Force pilot. 
uh, I think I did my first solo in an aircraft when I was 16. So, you know, I could fly an aircraft before I was, uh, you know, allowed to drive a car on my own. So, you know, that uh, was, a, was a very consistent theme and obviously has then continued to influence me, you know, beyond that. So I think some of the foundations of, of aviation uh, that, you know, kind of set you up in terms of how you plan, how you, uh, you know, need to prepare for that, but also just the nature of the aviation industry and, and what's required around that has probably influenced me from a pretty young age. So that's been a strong influence from, from early on. Yeah, it's a real spirit for the adventure and the great outdoors, you know. Well, yeah, that as well. So, I mean, we used to, uh, our family holiday uh, each year was to, to Bright, uh, which is a little town in, in northeast Victoria. Um, I remember, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but, you know, walking up Mount Feathertop um, as a kid, you know, and just all, already kind of, I guess, probably sowing the seeds. I didn't realize it at the time, you know, for getting outdoors, you know, kind of pushing the pushing the boundaries a little bit. And I think that was probably something that I never, that was probably always there in terms of a love of the outdoors, but I probably never fully appreciated till probably a little bit later in, in my life. And, but it was always there. I just probably don't think I, I realized it um, as much till I was a little bit older. So uh, yeah, and grew up with, you know, a, a mum that, uh, you know, really, you know, still does, you know, enjoys the outdoors, uh, you know, very into nature and just appreciating, I guess, the natural world as well. So I think, you know, probably take, you know, dad with the kind of aviation uh, side, mum with the, you know, more, you know, interest in the outdoors and kind of country lifestyle. And I'm very much like a mix of, of mum and dad and, you know, kind of combine those two into what I do now. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk about what you do now a little bit later on. Yeah. So you talked there about the Royal Australian Air Force and, uh, you're an officer, so yep. what were you known for in the Air Force? Oh, what was I known for in the Air Force? That's a good question. Um, so look, I, I think, uh, you know, look, I, I was very lucky. You know, I went to the Defence Force Academy, you know, I was 20 years old. I was a cadet in charge of 170 people, you know, so I think I had to learn um, pretty early on in my career around, you know, leadership and management and, and some of those aspects. Um, but I was then, you know, went on to, to do other things, obviously, once you leave the academy and things like that. But I think I was always um, very much into being a, what I would call kind of a subject matter expert in you know, my particular field, you know, in terms of doing lots of study, being, you know, known as, you know, the professional in what, in what I did and trying to stand out in, in that regard so that people would come to me for advice and trust what I was, you know, uh, saying to them. So... In my case, essentially, I was a I was an instructor on, on, on weapons and tactics, and so you know, I needed to know what I was you know talking about and instructing you know with with aircrew because ultimately you know it would have an impact on whether they would survive or, or die in you know in an actual conflict situation. So there isn't any real room for error or margin you know there. So you know I worked very hard on trying to build my own personal reputation there around. You know, being that subject matter expert and someone that people could trust because I think you know the risk in some of those roles is if you don't build that trust if you don't establish that you can be getting up and talking in front of these you know highly professional people and they're just straight out not going to listen to you you know so you have to um, you kind of match them and I, I think that was you know something that I certainly tried to do within the within the fighter community in that you know you've got a you know, range of people who are very, very professional, training very, very hard. If you're not seen to be putting in the same degree of effort, treating it in the same professional manner, um, you're not going to gain gain that respect. But equally, you have to be kind of part of them and, and try and understand what they're doing. So, um, yeah, I 
I was very conscious of, of trying to match that level of commitment, match that level of professionalism, match that level of, of effort um, you know, from them so that you would get that respect and then through that respect, you ultimately build that trust and then you can have you know, an impact you know, from there. So um, that's what I would hopefully like to see in, re- in retrospect, you know, how I was probably you know, viewed and I think that's you know, what I worked very hard to, to do and the reputation kind of followed from there, yeah. So you went from, you know, a real big focus on being a pilot to actually stepping out of that pilot. You know, what was the decision to focus more on strategy and be the expert in the field of you know, weapons and, and flying? Yeah, so to, to be honest, part of that wasn't a choice in the sense that uh, I joined the Air Force as a pilot. I you know, went to pilot's course and, and like so many others you know, before and after me, didn't make it through pilot's course. Um, but you know, I essentially had a choice at, at that point, which was, you know, the option was to, you know, I could have left the Air Force, uh, but I had uh, the option, you know, to stay in and I was lucky enough to then go down the, you know, chosen path that, that I wanted to. I was then very, very fortunate in that as part of what I ended up getting to do, I got to do a lot of flying in the backseat of F-18 Hornet. So I got to experience, you know, flying in a fighter aircraft, which was um, pretty amazing for a guy that, you know, failed pilot's course and, uh, you know, got to, do some amazing things um, following that. So that was in part, you know, not a, not a choice, but I think that the choice that I made in terms of which path I was to go down was a good match for my personality and and still kept me, you know, deeply involved with you know aircrew and, and aviation. So yeah, very lucky in terms of how that worked out um, for me. So serving your country is, is a very privileged and important role. So how did you cope with the fear? when going into war-torn countries, you know, you're not the pilot, but you are there in, you know, places like Iraq and you've, you're responsible, you have a lot of responsibility to the information you're providing to these pilots and other people in, in quite, you know, dangerous positions. You know, how did you cope with that fear? So I think this is something that, um, I don't know whether it's fully appreciated often by people outside the military in terms of, you know, say dealing with fear or how you deal with those situations. I mean, to sum it up, you know, in a really kind of simple catchphrase, it's the whole train hard, fight easy. So, you know, we were very, very big on, you know, peacetime training environment, pushing the boundaries, putting people in uncomfortable situations that would hopefully, you know, in a, in a training program sense, build to the point to where you are putting people in an environment that is hopefully more extreme than what you would experience in combat. So the idea being that by the time you go to combat, you're like, oh yeah, I've seen this before, or you know, you're now on a two-way firing range. That uh, you're very comfortable because you've seen experiences before. You know how to deal with it because you've done it in a training environment. What that means, though, is that um, you are taking things to a more extreme level in a in a training uh, environment, so that by the time you get there. So I think a lot of that fear um, disappears because I think a lot of fear generates inside individuals, which is around the unknown, right? You know, so we, you know, stress, you know, gets caused, you know, one of the things is, you know, around things that we don't control. So I think, you know, when you're in an environment of which you know what to do because you've done it and trained it so many times, you know, in some cases, you know, especially for guys that are doing more physical things, you know, there's muscle memory involved and some of those aspects uh, that, you know, when it comes, push comes to shove, uh, you've kind of done it before, you're operating, not autopilots, you know, kind of a bit, perhaps not the right terminology, but very much akin to that, where you're just going through a process and a system that you've done so many times before that you're very comfortable with that. So 
the variation that now you're in actual combat and you know it's, it's for real is a very small percentage of what you're actually doing and what your brain's used to. And you've now got the capacity for your brain to be able to handle that because I think what happens normally is people kind of become to- so task saturated, you know, their body starts to kind of shut down. Whereas because you're used to that task saturation, you're used to dealing with that, you've got means of coping with that and have stepped through that, you've essentially created this extra capacity for your brain to be able to deal with it. So now when you've got those other elements that are pop-ups that maybe you're not used to, your brain's got that capacity to be able to deal with them. So I don't know that I ever felt fear um, per se. I probably more felt pressure to make sure that I you know, executed on what we had always done and, and what I knew and to, and to just keep doing, doing that. I think probably the greater pressure uh, for me, it was just probably around fatigue, you know, just working incredibly long um, days, working, you know, weird hours. I mean, I was kind of working all night um, and into the day. So you're kind of trying to sleep while the sun's up and, and all those kind of things. And so I think probably for me, fatigue was probably a, a bigger issue and, and dealing with that rather than so much of the, the fear. But again, in a military training environment, they've put you in enough situations where you know how to operate when you're fatigued, you know how to recognize the signs always and you've got enough self-awareness to go okay this could be a problem how do i how do i manage that so Mm. i think yeah i wouldn't say fear was a was a massive i probably had more other issues than than fear to probably to think about i'd say yeah so confidence comes with preparation how often were you dealing with say pilots or other people you know around you and your teams that went to the point of overconfidence yeah, I think I think that's something you, you have to be careful of. I think though the beauty in, in that environment is um, there's enough people that are there to kind of check you. And and what I mean by that is, um, you know, in the fighter community, very, very big on, on debriefing, uh, on looking at individual performance, the performance of the mission and the outcomes of things like that. There is no room as a result of that process for overconfidence because you will kind of be pulled back and you're measured on your ultimate performance. So, and there's enough other people around to kind of check, to check that. So, you know, I think a lot of people from an outside sometime can think that, um, you know, some of those individuals are, you know, overconfident or arrogant, but when you actually operate within that environment, you realize that that is not necessarily the case, you know? So in my mind, you know, arrogance or overconfidence is probably thinking that, hey, you're better than somebody else or that you're able to deal with something that, that you're not. I think that whole debriefing process is a great leveler at realizing you know, exactly where you are in relation to others in your group or other cohorts, but equally, you know, did we or did we not achieve that mission outcome? And I think that whole debriefing process is is terrific for that to kind of eliminate that overconfidence, but equally give people sufficient confidence uh, that you know they are able to do you know what they set out to do. So it, it's a it's a fine balance, I, I think. But I, I wouldn't say that I saw a lot of overconfidence necessarily you know cre- creep in. And I think the debriefing process is probably critical to that. Yeah, following serving your country in the Air Force, you become executive officer for the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. You know what did this role entail? Yeah, so look, again, very, very lucky. So, you know, leaving the Air Force, went across to foreign affairs and trade. You know, to begin with, uh, I was working in a role that was related in the sense that I was working on defense and national security matters. So uh, initially working on um, defense and national security related issues in Southeast Asia. So it wasn't a massive leap, but I think probably in terms of content and subject matter knowledge, I think for me, the biggest leap was 
around the culture. You know, I come from a very high performance uh, culture and then went into essentially, you know, a very public service driven culture that was quite foreign to me and probably without being too critical was um, a little bit scared perhaps of, you know, ex-military types that probably came in, um, you know, with, with our particular approach. So to begin with, to, to be honest, I think, you know, I, I probably struggled a little bit with that to begin with where I probably um, kind of shut down a little bit around some of the ex-military, you know, a, a approaches um, for fear of offending, but, you know, trying to fit into the new culture, but started to realize that, hey, I'm missing out on actually bringing, you know, something to the, to the table here. And so I think over the you know, subsequent years, it was then trying to bring bring some of that back and realizing that a lot of what I'd done in the Air Force actually was applicable um, outside of a military environment and could be applied there. And so I'll be honest, I think, you know, initially there was that bit of a culture, a culture shock and working out how you try and fit that in. But I think over time, it's just working out, well, hey, within this different culture, how do I try and introduce and show these people what you know you can bring from elsewhere. And so that was definitely a personal learning for, for me about how do I demonstrate that something from elsewhere can actually fit into to this environment as well. It's quite interesting because I know when I stepped out of, you know, being an athlete and high performance and sports science and went into being, you know, sort of CEO roles, I did the same thing where I kind of went, I, I don't want to bring too much of that and tried to reestablish myself fully as a as a business leader yes and then realized you know after a couple of people made comments they're like well why aren't you doing the things that you did so well in those other areas and bring them into you know you, you, the, the way that you approach leadership and it took me a little while to really grasp that but once it did you know you just went oh, well that past experience has so much power and and how you lead in the future right. and i think that's critical and i think you know sometimes uh you know as, as leaders or what have you, you know, we can kind of forget um, some of the foundations that we've got. And I mean, I've been very lucky in that I think I've got some incredibly terrific, you know, tools and skills very early on in my career that laid a terrific foundation. Um, in that case, I think we need to, to, to leverage that because, uh, you know, it is applicable elsewhere. And, you know, we do have different life experiences. And I think the whole idea is that we should be bringing the accumulation of, of all of those uh, together. And I think that is what ultimately you know, can improve our performance is that we've had the benefit of experience from different industries or, or what have you. And if we can bring all of that to bear at, at one point in time, and it, but I don't know that I, it's probably taken me, it took me a little while to kind of probably learn that, learn that lesson, which is probably, as you say, you know, probably the same for, for, for many. You know, the way I see it is it's not around what is your one key identifier as a person. It's around how do you stack skills? So what skills have you got in your repertoire that allow you to stand out and own your own space and be who but be who you are, and I and I think that's that's critical, right? Is you do need to be who you are. You can't kind of deny what your your past is or what your heritage is in, in, in that respect. I think you know you take the good bits and and you need to, to leverage that and own it. Yeah. Yeah. So so what's it like when you go into negotiation with some of the biggest you know some big countries around the world who are seen from the outside as always trying to get one up on other countries? Yeah. So look, I mean, I I think um, you know. The challenge there is, I think, and what I've learned out of you know, my time at, at Foreign Affairs is that ultimately humans are very, very similar. So, you know, whether you're talking to 
um, you know, someone in Southeast Asia, you're talking to someone in the Middle East and, you know, they're representing the country or whatever. But at the, at the core of most humans, you know, if I take it, at, you know, as a dad and I look at someone else who's a dad, where no matter where they are in the world, they, you know, they want to make sure they provide for their family. They want to make sure that their kids get a good education, that they're safe and, and what have you. And I think what I learned was the more you can bring things down to where we have commonality and where we've got some similar basic aligned values. I mean, even across different religions, at the end of the day, you know, most religions at their core are very, very similar in terms of what they're advocating, in terms of treating other people well and things like that. You know, there's obviously differences, but you know, most of them at their core are very similar. Same as most other countries, you know, everyone's ultimately trying to advocate in their country's best interests, but the more you can find where those interests are aligned, and I think that is the key. And so the best negotiators and best negotiations that I, you know, were involved in was trying to find well, where is that mutual benefit? Where is the where are we mutually aligned? Let's let's focus less on the things where we're not aligned. Let's build that core relationship, understand where our mutual values, where our, our you know kind of mutual outcomes are aligned, and then we've got a good relationship. Now we can kind of worry about these other kind of little things on the outside. And it's much easier to, to do that. And I think you know, like anything in business, and I think I've taken this forward, is realizing just the power and the importance of relationships. And you will get far more out of a relationship. And this is very much of a Chinese approach, you know, where if you go and do a business deal, you'll go to China potentially for the first couple of trips. And all you do is go and socialize, eat, drink, or what have you, before you even talk about business, because they want to know who they're talking to. Are we aligned and understand that relationship? And I think the more people realize that if we have a great working relationship and understand one another, that then it's far easier to overcome what might have previously seen as insurmountable problems. And I think you know, that you can translate that into so many things in life, in business or, or what have you. And I would just sum that up broadly around you know, just having great empathy for other people, other cultures and understanding. And the more you can do to understand the people that you're trying to deal with, you know, whether that be research, whether that be you know, reading books, or whether it be just trying to sit down and actually understand someone and, and their story and where they're coming from, you have got a far greater propensity to have you know, a greater long-term outcome with that individual, that organization, or that country, you know, in, in this case. Um, so did you ever feel the imposter syndrome you know, come in during this role or previous role? Yes and yes and no. Um, probably in subsequent roles, probably uh, you know in the management consulting role a little bit, where you know you're suddenly dealing with um, you know CEOs, you're you're a chief advisor to to senior executives around some very very big things. I remember you know, it was only a couple of years ago. There I was sitting in South Korea with a CEO of this one of the biggest companies in the world. And you kind of okay, you know, kind of go back to the hotel that night and was like, is this, how did this kind of happen? You know, am I the right person uh, for this? And, uh, you know, of course, you, everyone has some kind of self doubt or, or, or self critique, but I think, you know, you have to focus on, well, they've obviously got to the point where, you know, I'm here for, for a reason. Um, I do have something of value to add, and otherwise I wouldn't kind of be here in the, in the, in the first place. And, then for me, I think I probably just see that as motivation. Well, I'm like, well, hey, rather than sitting there going, hey, I'm an imposter, I'm like, well, hey, I have to make sure that I deliver value. I have to make sure I kind of step up. So for me, I see that more as a as a challenge and, and something that you know kind of motivates me to make sure then that I do live up to probably what the expectation is or something like that. But I'd be lying if I ever said that I 
wasn't quite like, hey, how did this you know, come about? So, you know, you're talking about you know, learning those cultures and, and being patient in that trade role. Was there, a, was there a moment that you can share where you felt you got it wrong and, you know, what did you have to change to ensure that you either got it back on track or were successful next time? Oh, um, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so look, I mean, you know, part of part of that was not just dealing with uh, other countries, but part of it was dealing with our own govern, government, uh, sorry, government mechanisms. And, you know, we were having to put up things to, to a cabinet level, deal with the prime minister and put forward proposals for large, you know, volumes of, of ultimately, you know, public expenditure. And... Uh, it's amazing sometimes when you are you know, so close to something that sometimes you can lose some perspective. And so in one case, you know, we put something up to, to go to cabinet and basically was, you know, probably like 12 hours before it was going to actually go to the, you know, to the cabinet meeting with the prime minister and others. And someone from, um, you know, the foreign minister's office, you know, kind of came back with what was, in all honesty, a pretty kind of simple, logical kind of question that if you had seen this proposal for the first time, you know, most normal people probably would have asked that question and we kind of hadn't really kind of factored that into the proposal and so you do kind of sit there and go how the hell did we kind of miss that or not think about that and I think um, that to be honest was you know a really good lesson in hey we were kind of under the pump too much we were too close to the issue and, and trying to get this out on a tight timeline and you know, kind of broke you know a good rule which is to hey just kind of Everyone just let's step back from this, take a break, go and change the environment, change the kind of setting, come back and look at this with a fresh set of eyes. Or, hey, how about we go and give it to a red team or something like that to go and have another look at this. And so I think, you know, without going into all the details of that, I think that was a really good reminder that, um, you know, sometimes you do either have to step away or the importance of outside um, perspective. And so, you know, Nothing bad came out of that because the, you know, there are checks and balances and sometimes the government bureaucratic process works, you know, in terms of having to go through so many people and sometimes that's why it's there. Uh, but, you know, that was a, was a good reminder of, um, you know, someone seeing something for the first time and just, you know, picking a hole in it, you know, straight away and then going, ah, like that, yeah, embarrassing almost. You know, they may not have realized it, the person who picked it up, but, you know, internally you're, and, you know, in the group, you're like, ah, oh, man, we should not have done that, you know. <laughs> Or we, we shouldn't have missed that. You know, we should be, we're better, you know, we're better than that. Yeah. So you moved into leading organizations through management, consulting and advisory, as you spoke about there. For you, how did you have to change your mindset when you're kind of sitting on the other side of the fence, you know, rather than being the leader, you're now advising the leader? Yeah, it's, it's hard um, because I think, you know, a lot of people, by the time you have got to a very senior position in an organization, a CEO of a large organization, uh, you know, you generally have been there for for a number of decades, right? You know, you're not someone straight out of uni. You're not someone, it's not a small startup. You know, this is a large, complex organization. You know, we were dealing with big organizations. So this person is a subject matter probably in that company, you know, or that industry. And here you are, you know, trying to offer them a different perspective. So I think, you know, the challenge there is, you know, how do you establish credibility and trust very quickly um, with them? because otherwise they're sitting there across the table or across the couch or what have you. And it's kind of like, well, why do I need to, to listen to you? So I think establishing trust and credibility very quickly early on, but also showing that, hey, look, I am never going to have the degree of industry insight or in-depth knowledge that, that you do. But hey, you know, in my case, I think you know, one of my strengths is being able to kind of rapidly 
learn about a particular topic and coming in and showing that, hey, I've done my research, I know enough um, about your industry to know kind of what the problem is and be able to apply then outside um, perspective. So um, it's a challenge and I think that's a challenge for any uh, consultant who's going in and sitting down with a very experienced CEO or very, someone very experienced in that industry. But again, over time, you become experienced in being able to deal with, with those people and I think they see the moment you can start to deliver value uh, to them and that you can demonstrate that you're able to pull out insights quite quickly, they go, oh, okay, you're someone you know, worth listening to and you, it's establishing that trust and that relationship. So what do you think is kind of the key ingredient to establishing effective strategies? Look, keep keeping it simple. I think, uh, you know, a key thing with strategy is, and I say this to, to organizations, no matter their size, I think a, a big thing about strategy is realizing what you say no to. Um, I think, um, you know, being able to, as a result of your strategy saying, we don't do that, that's kind of off strategy. We don't do that, you know, that's, that's a distraction is I think a lot of people um, end up seeing this kind of shiny new toy and you know shifting the direction of their organization because there's this shiny new toy has popped up rather than just keeping it really simple focusing on what is their core business um, and having the discipline uh, in the strategy and then in through the you know executive and the management team to to kind of palm off some of these distractions that that, that come up so are the most effective strategies that i've seen and you can look at this you know, look at some of the biggest companies in the world and their strategy, you can say in one sentence. And I think you know that is the power. Now, getting it down to that and distilling it and doing and going full through that process and working out exactly what some of those are is often the challenge. But um, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world are as big as they are and as successful as they are because they've managed to go through that process and distill it down to just a couple of core capabilities that they are truly going to differentiate on and excel at. Uh, and they're not going to get distracted by these other little pop-ups. And I think that's critical. Yeah. So when you look at CEOs and senior executives, you know, what, what do you see as like the common missing piece you think to being high-performing leaders? Discipline and routine. Um, and what I mean by that is I think you know, some of the highest-performing uh, CEOs and, and leaders are those who have structure and those who have routine. And that's not... Um, a bias I don't think that I'm bringing from a military, a military background. But um, I think in today's day and age, especially with you know, emails and iPhone apps and, and everything else, it's very easy to be distracted by pop-ups and have someone else dictating your daily agenda, your weekly agenda, your monthly, yearly agenda. I think those that are very, very successful have structure and routine around it. Some, some of them, even though they perhaps lack the self-discipline to, to enact that, have a really, really good EA that will then keep them on track. So whether that if they've got enough self-discipline, um, they can do it themselves, or if they don't, they've got a really effective EA that, that keeps them on that. And that's everything from you know, blocking out chunks of their diaries to just say, no, this I'm setting aside this time for X, whatever it may be. It might be personal time, or it might be time for them just to sit down and walk the floor, or it might be time that they've sit down to um, you know, just actually read and assimilate a whole lot of you know, data that's going on in the organization. Those that have that structure and that discipline versus, hey, I had a two-hour block, but you know, Johnny really wants to, to see me, uh, just you know, I'll move that out of the diary. Well, it never, come, it never comes back in. So that structure, that routine uh, is terrific. And that also then is around your planning the year out as well, where you then have um, you know, different blocks 
that is a you know dedicated time to well hey we're going to do a strategy review at you know once every two years or twelve months or whatever the case may be and nothing's going to get in the way of that so um, that's an oversimplification but I I definitely believe that structure and routine are key differentiators yeah so you're very you know, we're going to switch here a little bit away from business side of things you're a very gifted photographer and have an excellent eye for detail what attracted you to photography in the first place so yeah very unconventional background so look i mean i think you know what we've kind of covered you know i was you know used to be in the air force i was a diplomat uh, and then you know management consultant probably the complete antithesis of arty creative type you know very structured you know very conservative probably in a business sense ultimately for me i i just my work-life balance just became totally out of whack. Um, I was never home. You know, I had a year where you know I think I travelled 48 out of 52 weeks in the year. That routine, that structure that you probably need when you look to be high-performing, you know, had, had disappeared. Where it was just totally dominated by by travel and work. I'd split up with a girlfriend at the time, and I just I was sitting there. I, I can still remember this occasion, and I tell this to lots of people. You know, I was sitting there. At, in the office on a Sunday, I'd just flown back from overseas. I'm about to fly out overseas again on you know, Monday morning. And I'm like, my mates are either all at the pub, they're out rock climbing, and I'm like sitting here behind a computer and I'm literally, I'm gonna go home, eat dinner, go to bed and fly out next morning. I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this is not what I wanted to, to be doing with my life. And there was this um, uh, print on the wall, um, you know, just like a you know, standard office kind of print. It was, you know, I can't even remember exactly what it was. Um, it was above the window and I was like, it'd be awesome if you just traveled around Australia and took landscape photos. And I didn't know anything about photography, anything about landscape <laughs> photography, let alone you know, how to use a camera properly other than, and that's pretty much how it started. So I literally, I went to the, you know, about a week later, I literally went to a bookstore here in Civic and bought a whole bunch of books on photography. And I was like, okay, so the digital sensor in a camera works the same way a Fleur did on a Hornet. In essence, I get this, it's essentially physics. Um, ergo, if I you know do this setting, you know, again, very kind of structured yeah. versus the kind of creative <laughs> type, um, you know, this should happen, this should happen. So then ultimately it was like, I think I want to do this. Went out and spent you know a whole lot of money on you know the best kind of camera and lenses I could get at the time, and then uh, went out, did it, and then people went, hey, these are these are alright. And then it was like, hey, have you thought about selling these? And it kind of went from there. So um, I guess yeah, it was a it was around realizing that I think lots of people have this, you know, where they have a moment in their life where things kind of all come crashing down and it forces you to kind of reevaluate where you are in life. Do you want to continue on that? And so that was a period for me that, you know, where there was a whole lot of, I guess, internal retrospection. And so ultimately, you know, me leaving Foreign Affairs and Trade, I mean, I had a whole bunch of senior people sit me down and say, you're an idiot. Like, you know, this is, this is silly. You have this highly successful career kind of before you. Why are you kind of walking away from this? Why are you doing that? And I couldn't honestly turn around and say that that's the life that I, that I want um, for, for, for me. Uh, and I realized that that balance wasn't right. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to do something different, but I also needed to, I think, just from my own personal sanity, mental health, physical health, all of that kind of things. And so... Um, I could have easily, and I think a lot of people do, they're like, oh, it's too hard to change and it's scary and then there's fear. Um, but, you know, I was like, no, I have, I have to kind of do this. And that's been an interesting journey in, in itself. So you talked about they're getting out cameras and lenses. So what's your favorite gear when you like being out there and trying to capture that perfect shot? Yeah, so look, I, I mean, my, my answer here is pretty much saying, to be honest, it doesn't really matter what gear you kind of have. You know, I mean, I've seen 
amazing photos taken with an iPhone. Uh, equally, you know, the, the better the gear ultimately just means the better the quality and the bigger you can go. But, you know, great photos can come from, you know, not that great a camera in that, in that sense. I think, you know, for me, it's more about you have to be out there. You have to be in the moment. You can't take a great sunrise photograph while you're still in bed. You know, you have to actually get up. You've got to be out there um, and, and experiencing it. And so I think, you know, that's my advice to people is, hey, worry less about what camera gear you've got. Worry more about, hey, getting out there and you know, being there and, and being present and, you know, everything that kind of comes from that. I've got a friend who just managed to be in the right place, right time, kind of planned, but his like favorite set of shots was with the Dalai Lama, uh, which is which was then used on the front cover of the Dalai Lama's book. Yes. And, you know, very, yep. very, um, just everything kind of fell into line for him. You know, for you, what do you have like a favorite photo or collection of photos and, and it connects with you really deeply and you're just really proud of it? So probably my alpine and snow photos so for me um i've always liked the australian alps you know like i think i said earlier growing up and you know visiting northeast victoria so for me uh a lot of my snow shots where i've had to go out i've camped out alone you know in the snow for four or five nights uh you know sometimes in some kind of crazy conditions uh to try and get that backcountry shot where there's no one else around and you know you're getting a sunrise over you know australia's highest mountain mount kosciuszko or whatever the case may be um so i think you know i'm probably proud of the what goes into getting some of those shots? I mean, lots of people walk up Mount Kosciuszko. Um, you know, it's a big, ever-growing stream of people, I think, sometimes when you go up there, especially in summer. But in winter, um, there's more and more people going out backcountry, you know, these days a little bit. But, you know, there's there's no one really out there at sunrise. And so I, you know, in one case, I wanted to get, um, I was like, hey, it'd be really good to get a sunrise over Mount Kosciuszko. So I was camped out for five nights. The first two nights, the tent was just getting buried in snow. Couldn't see a thing, no mobile phone coverage. So I've got no idea what the weather is. But I'm like, well, it's going to pass at some point. Um, you know, I've done enough planning. I can be out here for a few days and, and you know, got enough rations and things like that. So it was just a matter of then of, of waiting. And then ultimately, you know, clear morning, got up to a higher vantage point and had this amazing sunrise over Mount Kosciuszko. And, you know, not another person in sight. And I guess for me, then the joy is being able to bring that back, you know, for other people to experience. Because not everyone can get out there. You know, it might be, you know, physical condition, um, just, you know, money, whatever the case may be, sheer ge geographic location of where they are, but at least I'm able to bring that back and share that with other people so they can, you know, experience it and see, I guess, the beauty in, in the landscape. So, um, yeah, they're some of the shots that I probably like the most. And you get to share those now in your own gallery. So yes. Scott Lego yep. Gallery, um, beautiful showroom there in Kingston, Foreshore in Canberra. You know, how important is it for you in business to have both that physical showroom and online presence when we're seeing so many people transfer their business approach to online only? It's it's absolutely critical for us. So we were, you know, an online business for 10 years before we opened the gallery. And, you know, people still uh, need, in, in our case, it's a very visual product. Um, and people, I f still feel like, need to be able to see something in person and in our case to understand the quality the detail and then the size so people are buying something that's going in their home or their office or what have you and a lot of people struggle with well how big should i have it you know it's going to go above this couch people still need advice and this is probably where my kind of consulting background is probably increasingly coming into what we do with people in the gallery is 
they need to come in and talk to someone and get advice on, well, what will work? What do you have in the collection? What do you think will work in, in my house or my environment? Or do you have something from here? And we're able to kind of help them. And so for us, it's all about the customer experience that people are now able to, to come in and do that. And a good example is online, um, everyone was buying canvas prints because they were shopping on price because our canvas prints are more affordable than our frame prints in our acrylic wall mounts. Now that people come in the gallery, they're buying our more expensive products in terms of our frame prints more often than they were just online because they can see the quality difference, they can see the impact, but some of that's hard to convey online. So I think you know, a lot of businesses, the omni-channel presence of having online and a physical store um, is going to continue to be here. I get for a lot of areas of retail that may not be the case, but I think in a lot of areas, people still need to be able to see, look, touch um, something and that has helped our business uh, immensely. And again, it comes back to trying to listen to your customers, you know, where uh, we had lots of people say, hey, do you have somewhere or a showroom or a gallery where I can come and see this? And, and now we do. Um, and, you know, we're looking at trying to expand that again. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely critical. So now you've recently become a director of the Canberra Business Chamber. You know, what role does Business Chamber provide in the Canberra business community? And what is kind of, why are you? Why have you decided to you know now be a director in that space? So look, I think you ultimately get to a point in life where you realise that you have something to, to offer um, other people, and so you look. I've been very fortunate in that, like you know, had an air force background. Um, yeah, through front affairs, worked overseas in their management consulting. You know, really big companies here in Australia and, and overseas, and you realise that you have seen all facets of government, of business, and now owning my own small business, which is kind of like at the other extreme, that you realize there are things from that background, that experience that you can offer to others to, to, to help them. And that can be, in my, this case, you know, helping the chamber itself, you know, as, a, as it's a business itself, but also given the role of the chamber to, to support and advocate and promote, you know, Canberra business. Um, you know, there's definitely something that I feel that I'm able to bring from, from, from that experience and then help bring others together around that as well. So I think part of it, you know, you get to a point where over time your relationship grows, your network grows, and then you're able to bring more people together to help, you know, solve problems and issues as well. So I'd like to think that I'm able to bring that different experience um, that maybe not a lot of Canberra businesses have had, you know, that's, that's quite unique, I guess, in that sense, in terms of my background and bring that to bear and to help the, the business community more broadly yeah we all know smart people have great answers but the most successful people ask great questions when was the last time you did something for the first time oh good question um did something for the first time uh i feel it yeah this is kind of probably I don't know whether it's, it's a specific example, but you know, I have, have a young daughter um, and I feel like I'm doing things for the first time the whole time <laughs> with, with, with her. But so it's probably a broader answer in that, you know, there are things that I am experiencing for the first time with her and even just this month, you know, traveling with her um, where I have only ever observed, you know, this with other people, but now I am doing things with her for the first time, you know, whether it be reading a book, whether it be trying to teach her to swim, whether it be, um, you know, having her have experienced something for the first time and therefore, you know, me experiencing that for the first time through her. And I've, it's been a really, really powerful lesson for me of late around the importance of actually doing something rather than just 
um, reading about it or knowing about it. Like I've always thought I'm a reasonably empathetic person that I, and that I understand, but I have really realized that um, with her, sometimes you truly have to physically experience something yourself to truly understand to truly understand it. And so because I am experiencing things for the first time with her and you know, challenges and issues in trying to you know, negotiate with a little toddler, um, you know, you're, I am doing things for the first time with someone of, of that capacity, if you understand what I mean. You know, I'm not dealing with a, I'm not saying she's dumb, that's not what I mean. I mean, you know, I'm not dealing with a, in, I can't have an intellectual conversation with her in terms of rationalizing something. So I'm having to break something down to obviously, you know, very basic levels with her, which is probably something that, you know, I haven't done before. You know, so um, I feel like I'm probably constantly doing something new the whole time with her. And, but it's good. I love it. It's awesome. Yeah. What is the one question that you would love to solve? How do we, how do we create the world to be a more sustainable place? You know, so I think, um, yeah, and, and that's, that goes beyond, you know, climate change and, and issues around that, you know, is I, I feel like, you know, as a world, you know, we have a sustainability problem in terms of how do we sustain um, the human race and the globe itself as a living you know entity that that is that is ultimately I think you know that is the, the challenge and the question of our time and it's going to be for generations to, to come and um, I, I don't have the answers and I don't know that anyone has you know I don't know there is a penultimate answer um, you know, obviously, you know, the, just the sheer size and scale of, of the human population is, is a challenge in itself and, and kind of how do we deal with that around sustainability. So, yeah, I mean, that is, that's probably the thing that I um, wrestle with in my own mind in terms of asking, you know, that is the one of the penultimate questions, I think, you know, for, for, for uh, us as a, as a human race is how do we, how do we sustain ourselves on this on this planet? And now obviously there's, you know, that opens up all sorts of questions about do you constrain it to this planet and all sorts of things like that. But I think, you know, we have, you know, consumed, destroyed, whatever, you know, adjectives you want to use, so much of this, you know, finite resource on the planet in such a very, very small point in time. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to kind of extrapolate that out to, to realise that that is not sustainable. And how we solve that, yeah, that is... That's probably my big question. It's a very big question. So the final question uh, for today, how would you describe living an extraordinary life? Look, it's, it's rewarding and I would encourage everybody, no matter where they are in their life, to think about how they can improve their performance and the performance of those around them. Because when you go through that process, the results in the life that you live becomes extraordinary and you know my advice would be just to start with a simple question of you know how can i do this or how can i do that better you know and the simple act of asking yourself and you know doing a personal debrief around how can i do something better will start you on a journey that will then start to open up things so i think you know that continuous improvement that self-development process is is critical and so i would encourage everyone to always and no matter where they are in terms of their level of performance um, right now is to continually you know ask that question you know can i can i do this better can i do this more efficiently how is there a better way uh, to do this and by going through that process you will start to uncover um, you know answers and insights that 
maybe you've kind of always been there, but you haven't perhaps you know, brought them forward to your consciousness to, to the point that you then act on them. And I think the people who are most successful are people that have sufficient self-awareness to understand their strengths and weaknesses because they've gone through that process. It's then another step to then act on them and improve them and things like that. But going through that kind of questioning process um, to work out whether there's a better way or you could be doing something better is, is the start of that. And um, it's powerful. It really is powerful. And I, there is a reason that there are people who are performing at different levels in society. And you know, broadly, we've all got the similar. You know, we're like in a very incredibly lucky country. You know, we're all afforded a, broadly. You know, the same opportunity. Um, but how is it that some people are able to you know, kind of excel where others who are essentially in the same kind of basket, you know, haven't, haven't done so. And so I think, you know, it's, if you want to achieve that greater level of success, I think it's imperative on us. And this is what, you know, this podcast is great where, you know, you can look at some of these other people and go, well, what is it that they're doing? What is it that I could learn from them or, or apply, uh, apply for them, sorry, apply from them. And yeah, you just, it's, it kind of goes from there. So it's never too late. You know, it's absolutely never too late. I mean, I've seen some incredibly, you know, um, elderly people who have decided that, you know, literally sitting in a nursing home going, hey, this is not how I wanted to end my life and have done something and ultimately got themselves out of that situation. And that that's incredibly powerful because, you know, they've kind of started to ask that question is, hey, is this, is this really how it needs to be or how I want it to be? And, and then go through that and realize that there's other alternatives and there's things that they can do to control it. So, yeah. You've shared some uh, incredible insights today. How can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you? Yeah, so look, obviously, you know, website is, is the best start. So scottlego.com, so S-C-O-T-T-L-E-G-O.com that uh, has, you know, the collection of my photographs and details about a gallery. Obviously, for those that are in Canberra or visiting Canberra, the best option is to, to come into our gallery, which is at 45 Jardine Street in Kingston. Uh, and then obviously online, you know, Instagram, uh, you know, LinkedIn, uh, you know, Facebook, all the usual kind of social channels can follow Scott Lego um, there as well. Excellent. So we'll get those, all those links in the show notes and also the address. Scott, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You've had an incredibly extraordinary life and starting out in your young years, wanting to be a pilot and fly through the skies and having that, that background on your dad's side of the family to being outdoors and enjoying the nature and, and and the amazing landscapes we have around the world with your you know coming through from your mum's side to then you're being in the air force where you you obviously your dream of being a pilot was kind of taken away to a certain extent but then you found a new path you know you're still hitting in this amazing journey but you found a new path and worked out how you could provide incredible impact to people that were in some very powerful positions to make a huge difference to the world and you you are very meticulous i can see that in the way you approach things and you look at the strategy and you try and look at it from all aspects and think about okay how can i make this simple for people that i'm working with so they understand it they can feel the benefit of it and can actually implement effectively uh, to to then going into a world of of trade where you're dealing with different countries and who have different agendas and different ideas around how things work and understanding the different cultures and how you can work with them to advising and managing people around different ways of thinking you know how can they strategize in a different way how can they lead more effectively how can they become more high performing leaders and now to switch out of that kind of really busy 
world of do more, go further, push higher to going, you know what, I need a bit of life balance and understanding that photography, even though you had no background in it, was going to be your new pathway. And to see what you've achieved since then is, is phenomenal. So I really take, uh, if I had a hat on, I'd take my hat <laughs> off to you to to taking that big leap of faith uh, and challenging yourself to try and create something really new and different. And, you know, you're succeeding really well there. So congratulations on that. Um, and, you know, just thank you very much for your wonderful insights today. It's been a real pleasure. No, no, pleasure um, from me as well. So thank you, Craig. No, much appreciated. On today's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about people support, what they create. How often do you come up with a great idea, share it with your team? They agree, but they quickly lose interest. People will support what they create. If they aren't involved in development of a project, strategy, or even a hire of a new team member, then there is very little emotional connection to it and less likelihood to find the motivation to make it happen. Here are three ways to get your employees or stakeholders buy-in. Number one, involve your team early during the creation of an idea, project, or strategy. Number two, position the idea so that it feels like your team came up with the idea. Number three, invite the team to determine the best way to solve a problem and deliver the outcome. Thank you for listening to an incredibly insightful conversation with Scott Lego and I, for detail on the Active CEO podcast. Have you got CEO presence? Are you feeling disappointed that you don't always intentionally prepare, plan, and practice being present and delivering high performance leadership? It's time for you to proactively upgrade your CEO presence as a leader. Evolve your communication, influence, and performance to positively impact every human you interact with. Before every meeting, presentation, or interaction, do you, number one, plan your content and the way you want to deliver it. Number two, set your intention of the meeting and the outcome you desire. Number three, Create the energy you want in the room. Number four, raise the performance of your delivery. Number five, be fully present without a phone notification or distraction of an issue or the next meeting that's coming up. Would you like some help on how you can improve your CEO presence? Then please contact me for a complimentary 30-minute call on how you can improve your CEO presence, then contact me at craig at nrg, the number two, perform.com, or click on the contact page of www.craigjohns.com.au website. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. 
Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.